0: So if you would take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 John, 1 John, chapter 5. And the title of this message is Born of God. And I want to read the first five verses, and this is going to be a part one, and next Sunday I will be here for part two. Now, we have taken a picture of everyone here today. I know who you are, and I can find you. So you need to be here next Sunday as well. And I want to read verses 1 through 5, we'll look at a part of it today and we will finish it next Lord's Day. And beginning in verse 1, and this is God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God?" In these verses, the Apostle John is addressing the subject of the new birth, being born again, being born of God. And this is one of the most important doctrines in the entire Bible because as Jesus said earlier, unless one is born of God or born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. And unless one is born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. This rises to the highest level of importance as a truth taught in Scripture. The new birth is when eternal life enters your spiritually dead soul, and you come alive unto God. And the life of God now surges through your soul. It is the new birth that enables you to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is regeneration that precedes saving faith. It is regeneration that produces saving faith. Because dead men cannot repent, and spiritually dead men cannot believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the order of Salutis, the order of salvation, regeneration precedes justification by faith alone. This is where the eternal purposes of God intersect experientially into the soul of a spiritually dead sinner, and from this, comes saving faith. From this comes repentance. From this comes an entirely new life in Jesus Christ. It is this important. The Apostle John has more to say about being born of God than any other author in the entire Bible. And the book of 1 John specifically has more to say about the topic of, the subject of the new birth than any other book in the entire Bible. This is a book about who is born of God. Now, what are the distinguishing marks of one who is born of God? How would you know if you have been born of God? What are the necessary evidences of being born of God? And so, this is a book about assurance of salvation. It is a book about assurance of being born again. Now as we look at these verses this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to break it out like this, and I, I want to give you a road map on, on where we're going. Today we're going to look at the meaning of being born of God. And we see born of God mentioned three times in this passage, twice in verse 1 and once in verse 4. So this is the central theme of these verses, it's all about being born of God. And next Lord's Day, we're going to look at the marks of being born of God. And in this text, there are five marks of being born of God. And I just want to draw these to your attention just by way of introduction. In verse 1, if you're born of God, there will be faith in Christ. And second, if you're born of God, in verse 1, you will have love for God. And then third, if you're born of God, you will have love for the brethren. That's also in verse 1. And then in verses 2 and 3 is the fourth aspect or the fourth mark of being born of God. You will be keeping the commandments. And then finally, in verses 4 and 5, the one who is born of God overcomes the world, a reference to this evil world system that is anti God and anti Christ. And so we have a lot to look forward to both today and next Lord's Day, the meaning of being born of God, the marks of being born of God. So let's look first now under the first main heading that I have for you, which is the meaning of born of God. We read, In the middle of verse 1, or I'll start at the beginning, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is, here it is, born of God. And at the end of the first verse, whoever loves the Father loves the child, born of Him, the Him, the antecedent is the Father, is God, and it points back to God. And then as I've already read in verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So we need to understand what does it mean to be born of God? And the word born here means to be begotten. It means to be brought forth unto life. And literally when it, as it reads here born of God, it is born out of God, born by God, and it is God who impregnates the womb of the heart, and it is God who causes a conception to take place in the womb. And God creates life where there had never previously been life. And God creates eternal life. He creates spiritual life, where previously the heart was spiritually dead in trespasses and sin. There was an existence, but there was no life. There was separation from God, and the new birth implants life in the spiritually dead soul. And this draws on the analogy of what Jesus taught when He addressed Nicodemus, and in John chapter 3 verse 6, Jesus spoke very directly Nicodemus and he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, referring to our physical birth. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he drove it home with Nicodemus and said, do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. And so John now, writing some sixty years later after Jesus addressed Nicodemus privately, and no, no doubt Jesus must have, have, have shared with John and maybe the other disciples this encounter with, with Nicodemus. Now, 60 years later, as John writes the book of 1 John, it is still engraven in his mind this analogy, this metaphor of, of being birthed into the kingdom of God. And as he writes this epistle, he, he draws upon this to communicate the truth of what we call regeneration. Regeneration is the imparting a spiritual life to the once spiritually dead soul. And so, I want to sharpen our understanding of what it is to be born of God because it rises to really the highest level of importance in your life. Because you'll never see the kingdom of God You'll never enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You can join a church. You could walk an aisle. You could raise a hand. You could parrot a prayer. You you could join the choir. You could go to a Bible study and not be born again. And so, the acid test is, have you been born again? And so, because it is so necessary for each and every one of us, our eternal destiny hinges upon this, I want to give you ten words that will help us define what it is to be born of God. I want to help bring into focus this extraordinary miracle that God performs in the human heart. And the first word that I want to give you is divine. Being born of God is a divine birth. And as you look at verse 1 and verse 4, that becomes very obvious because it says, born of God. There's only one Father at work here. Uh, there is only one progenitor, and that is God the Father, working by His Spirit in perfect harmony with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says born of God, it does not say born of God and man. No, there's only one active agent in the new birth, and it is God. God was active, you were passive. It was 100% a work of God in your spiritually dead soul. It was a 0% participation by you in the new birth theologians refer to this as, a, as monergism, as a monergistic regeneration. And the word monergism is a combination of two Greek words, mono, which means one, and energes means a, a worker. Monergism or monergistic means there's only one active agent in your new birth, and that was God. It's not synergistic, S-Y-N, in which there are two active agents. It's God and man who produce the the new birth. No, there's only one active agent, and it is God and God alone. I want to take us to two cross-references that will make this very clear, and the first is James chapter 1, James chapter 1 and, and verse 18, which reads, And I love hearing the pages of the Bible turn. I just love that. Good for you. Do not do this on a cell phone, okay? (laughs) All right, so verse 18, in the exercise of His will, God's will, He, not, not we, He, brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. Well, we see very clearly here that it is the sovereign will of God and the sovereign working of God that produces the new birth. It is God and God alone. And then in John chapter 1 and verse 13, i want to to re- also read verse 12 before it, and as you're turning to it, I want you to note where this is found in the gospel of John. This is on the front doorsteps of the gospel of John. This isn't hidden in the back of the book. That This is right here for everyone to see who begins to read the gospel of John. It has a place of great preeminence. And in verse 12 we read of John 1, as many as received Him, referring to Christ, the word receive there means to to welcome a guest into into a home. As many as received Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Now, the question is, why do some believe in His name and others do not believe in His name? And the question is, how is it in reality that you receive Christ and become a child of God? And the answer is found in the very next verse, verse 13, in one of the most profound statements of sound doctrine that that you'll find anywhere. In fact, it's the continuation of the same sentence. Who were born? Now stop right there. That means to be born spiritually. He's playing off the analogy of a physical birth, but the intent here in the context is a spiritual birth. He will then give three negatives and one positive, lest there could be any misunderstanding. So, it begins with negative denial, then positive assertion. So, no thinking can slip through the cracks here. So, He begins by saying how someone is born of God, not of blood. Now, what does that mean? well, it's not according to your bloodline. It's not according to your lineage. It's not according to what physical family you were born in, or who your forefathers were, who your father was, or your grandfather. That that had nothing to do with it. God has many children, but He has no grandchildren. So not born of blood, that's very obvious. You're not, you weren't born a Christian. You weren't born into it. And then, nor of the will of the flesh. You were not born by the will of your flesh. That refers to your attempts at self-righteousness to pull yourself up to God. It refers to your moral activity to try to commend yourself to God. You cannot work your way into the kingdom of God. That's that's what this is saying. But it's this third negative that really is a knockout punch. Don't let this escape your eye. Nor the will of man. Your will had absolutely nothing to do with your new birth. That may come as a shock to, to, to some of you. There was no free will that got you born again. Charles Adam Spurgeon said, I've heard much about free will, but I still have never seen it, Loch Ness Monster, The Abominable Snowman, and free will. (laughs) Name three things you've always heard about but never seen. So he says very clearly, nor the will of man. Why is that theologically true? Because those who are spiritual corpses laying in the grave of sin cannot raise themselves to life. They they do not have an active will towards God. Why? Because they're spiritually dead, because they're held captive by a real devil who will not let them go, and because they are enslaved to sin, and sin is their cruel taskmaster. And sin is commanding them to disobey. And so they can't break the shackles, and they have no desire to break the shackles. And so for the only way for them to enter into the kingdom of God is what the last three words of this verse say, but, meaning stark contrast, but of God, but born of God. And so, it is God and God alone who is the active agent in regeneration. And this all takes place at the same time, and I'm going to explain this next Sunday. The moment you are born of God, you immediately call upon the name of the Lord, and you immediately believe in Jesus Christ. And you immediately now have love for God. And you now immediately are living in a new realm, no longer in the realm of this world. You are an overcomer of this evil world system because you now belong to the kingdom of God. But it all starts, the tip of the spear is God's work in regenerating and impregnating the spiritually barren heart. James Montgomery Boyce is a great expositor, was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, a very historic church. He's preached in his pulpit before a a prince of an expositor. And I want to read you what James Montgomery Boyce has to say at this point. Clearly, God uses this image of being born again, because it alone shows the initiative lies with the father entirely and not with the son or the daughter who is engendered. And then Boyce asks three questions What did you do? What did you have to do with your physical birth? Well, I'm waiting. Nothing. Second question. Did you say, I would like to be a boy and be born to Mr. and Mrs. Smith? They seem like a very nice couple. Third question, did you say, I'd like to be a girl, five feet, six inches tall, and have blonde hair? Boyce answers his own questions. Of course you did not. You had nothing to do with it at all. Instead, your father met your mother, and between them, they produced you, and you only realized what had happened afterward." Now Boyce drives the point home. He says, "'It is obvious, therefore, that when God uses this image," referring to the new birth, He does so to show that He alone is responsible for your salvation. And that you believe only because He first created life within you to do so. And so, this is where our, our study of being born of God begins. It begins with God. Everything begins with God, does it not? God is, here's a fundamental principle of theology God is always previous, God is never playing catch up, God is always out ahead of the parade. And the same is true in the new birth. So that's number one. It's a divine birth. Who could possibly not see that? Second, it's an immediate birth. It it, it takes place in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It's not something that takes place over an extended period of time. No one is gradually born again. Uh, just like a physical birth, takes place at a moment. So, a spiritual birth takes place at a moment. I can look at my driver's license and tell you when I was physically born, April the 13th, 1951. It was at 1013, my mother tells me. I mean, there was a point... When I entered into this world, it was a definitive point. And so it is with being born of God, there is a point in time when you were birthed into the kingdom of heaven. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, arguably the greatest preacher who's ever lived, the prince of preachers, writes. Every regeneration is instantaneous. There must be a time when the man begins to live. There must be a period when the first ray of light darts into the open eye. There must be a time when the man is condemned and then a period when he's not condemned. There must be an instant when the change takes place place, close quote. Some of you can identify when it was that you were birthed into the kingdom. I was 17 years old, about to enter into my senior year of high school. I went off to a camp in Colorado. I heard a message I'd never heard before. I heard a message from John chapter 2 that Jesus turned water into wine, and that's exactly what He would do in my life. He would take the dirty, dingy, stagnant water of my heart, and He would transform it into the most sparkling, best life I could ever possibly experience. And when I heard that, it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And we were told to go out into the into the Colorado mountains and just walk out there and be alone with God and look up to the heavens and pray to God if you are so moved to do so. And I called out upon the Lord to do this in my life, and I was born again. Some of you here today cannot pinpoint that time, and that does not mean that you're not born again if you cannot pinpoint that time. And there are reasons why some people cannot pinpoint that time. For some, they sat under such, had sat under such weak preaching of the Word of God, they didn't know enough to really be able to isolate that moment. And for others, they had been taught really just bad theology. Some people are so perfectionistic that it's hard for them to accept what God has done in their life, but nevertheless even if you cannot pinpoint that time, it did take place in a moment. And it is the greatest event that has ever happened in your life. And it seems to me that you would know when the greatest event that has ever happened in your life, that you would be able to know that. I mean, I know the day when I was married, I know the date when my four children were born. I know the date when I graduated from junior high school and from high school and from college and from seminary and from a a doctoral program. I know the day. I know the time. I know the day when I scored four touchdowns. (laughs) It would seem like you would know the greatest event that has ever happened in your life. When you went from death and a a grave of sin, and you were spiritually resurrected and brought forth unto life, that you would know that. When you went from utter darkness and ignorance and immorality and entered into the light of the knowledge of God and the light of truth, it seems like you would know that. Everything else in your life is secondary. This is first and foremost primary. The Bible presents it this way. For example, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached arguably the greatest sermon ever to be preached in the church age. Three thousand souls were converted. It was on the day of Pentecost, not the month of Pentecost, not the summer of Pentecost, not the year of Pentecost. It was on the day of Pentecost that three thousand souls were instantly, immediately birthed into the kingdom of God. And we continue to read at the end of Acts chapter 2 this church that was just spontaneously birthed into existence that did not previously exist in Acts 2, 47. Listen to this. The Lord was adding to their number. It wasn't the marketing marketing team that was adding to their number. It wasn't the outreach team that was adding to their number. It was the Lord because the Lord is the only one who can impregnate the barren heart. It was the Lord who was adding to their number, listen to this, day by day those who were being saved. You know what that means? Some were saved on Monday, others were saved on Tuesday, still others were saved on Wednesday, and others were saved on Thursday. There was a day, there was a time, there was a place in which they were birthed into the kingdom of God. As you continue to read the book of Acts, it's just more the same. There was a day, there was a time when the Ethiopian eunuch was converted under Philip explaining Isaiah 53 and Christ, and immediately he is birthed into the kingdom and he wants to be baptized. The same was Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. He, he was struck with the lightning bolt of God's saving grace, and in a moment he was converted. What would you have me to do, Lord? And The same was true with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. The same was true with Lydia in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. In that precise moment, God, Deanoigo, God opened her heart and she was birthed into the kingdom of God. And as a result of that, on down the road, shortly thereafter, Paul was thrown into prison in Philippi, and it was midnight the time, and God sent an earthquake that threw open the doors of the prison, but it also threw open the doors of the Philippian jailer's heart. And he cries out, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That very night, he was regenerated, and those in his household were regenerated that night. And in the middle of the night, they were baptized. The new birth is never this extended gestation period over a lengthy period of time, it takes place in a moment, and so the same is true in your life. Whether you can pinpoint that or not is not necessary for your salvation, but it does seem to me that you would want to know when it was you came into the kingdom. Third word, individual. It's an individual birth. Everyone who is born again is birthed into the kingdom one person at a time. This is highly individual. There may have been others who were converted in the same worship service as you, but it was as if there was no one else in the building. It was one-on-one with you and God. Listen, God has many sons and many daughters, but He has no twins and He has no triplets. There is is no group regeneration. Listen to what Jesus said to Nicodemus. First thing He said to Nicodemus was how individual and personal this is, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one...' Is born again. Not two, not three. Unless one is born again, he, not you all or they, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is pressing down on how individual this is, Nicodemus. You need to be born again. And then in verse 7, which I've already read, he said, Do not be amazed that I say to you, You must be born again. Perhaps best illustrated, when Jesus came to call upon Mary and Martha and Lazarus would be raised from the dead, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. If He had simply said, come forth, He would have emptied the entire graveyard. Zacchaeus, come down. I must dine with you tonight. Levi, follow me. He calls us individually by name as his sheep, does he not? And involved in this is an individual birth. Fourth, it's an irresistible birth. I mean, no human resistance can can thwart or hinder the powerful movement of the Holy Spirit of God in His work of regeneration in the day of His power. Listen to John 3 verse 8 as Jesus has this to say to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. The wind has a mind of its own. No one can start the blowing of the wind. No one can steer the blowing of the wind. No one can stop the blowing of the wind. The wind is so powerful that it, in many cases, just pancakes a landscape and just wipes out an entire village or or part of a town. When a tornado hits, when a hurricane hits, I I used to live in Mobile, Alabama, which is on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. You, You can't be any further south and still be on land than to be in Mobile, Alabama. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. And we were right in what they call Hurricane Alley. And there's actually what is called hurricane season when the Atlantic Ocean becomes so hot with the water, and then the Gulf of uh, Mexico becomes so hot that it creates conditions for, for hurricanes. And when you hear a hurricane is coming, you get in your car, and you head not just out of town, you get out of state. You may go a couple states away because it is so powerful. And when you come back and, and look at your neighborhood, and trees that have been there for 200 years now look like toothpicks, That's how powerful the wind is. And Jesus draws upon this analogy to communicate what it is to be born of God, that the movement of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the One who is to be regenerated, there can be no resistance greater than God's power to conquer the proud heart. And I'll set before you Exhibit A, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus with papers in hand to come arrest the Christians and to drag them back to Jerusalem, and no doubt to have them stoned to death, just like they had stoned Stephen to death, and Saul had stood there and observed that and, and, and watched that, he was hell-bent on destroying the church And putting to death every Christian who was on the way. And as he is on the road to Damascus, (laughs) in a moment, in an instant, the power of God was unleashed upon Saul of Tarsus, and public enemy number one of the church became the greatest apostle who ever lived and became the author of thirteen New Testament books. He went from being a blasphemer to a believer, and it was the power of the new birth that dramatically changed and transformed His life. It is an irresistible birth. Fifth, it's a comprehensive birth. That means it completely transforms the entirety of who you are from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, every inch and every ounce of you is utterly changed and transformed your mind, your affections, and your heart. And why must this be so? Because of the doctrine of total depravity. And total depravity does not mean you're as as totally depraved as you could possibly be. What it means is, is every part of you the totality of your personality and personhood has been radically corrupted by sin that has been passed down to you in the womb at the moment of conception. And so, total depravity for every person who, has, who is outside the kingdom of God, three things. They have a darkened mind, they have a defied will, a defiled will, excuse me, a defiled heart and a dead will. And in order for them to believe, in order for them to follow Christ, the new birth must affect a complete transformation of the whole person. It must give a new mind to see God, to see themselves, to see Christ, to see the gospel, They must be given a new heart to desire the grace of God. It gives new affections, it gives new loves, it gives a new will. It's a total transformation. Now, you don't become perfect, but I will say this. The Puritans used to say, it is a greater transformation when you are born again than when you leave this world and go to heaven. Because in regeneration, you go from death to life. When you leave this world, you go from glory to glory. You you, you leave this world already converted and with a new mind and a new heart and already being conformed into the image of Christ, and when you go into His presence, It is less of a transformation than the moment you were born again. As you went from being a spiritual corpse, you went from being a a dead man walking to being alive unto God. Let me give you this illustration. Thomas Chalmers was a powerful Scottish preacher of the 19th century. And he was an unconverted preacher. He was also a professor of mathematics in one of the leading universities of Scotland. And he had more interest in his academics than he did in the Bible. He had had an elder who would call on him every Saturday night before he would preach and want to pray with him and pray for him. Thomas Chalmers, who was a a luminary figure in Scottish history would never be found reading his Bible. And the elder said, every every Saturday night when I call on you, you're not digging into the Bible. You're not, I I never see you in the Bible. Well, he was unconverted. He had no appetite. It would be like a lion trying to eat grass. He, He had no desire for it. And without giving you his whole testimony, he was then born again. That same elder kept coming by, and he said, now every Saturday night, When I see you in your study, you have an open Bible, and you're pouring over the Scripture. And that is the difference that the new birth makes. And for most of you here today, that's why you're in this church, because you want the Word of God. You have an appetite for for the Word of God, for the milk of the Word, for the solid meat of the Word. You want to be here, and Thomas Chalmers went on to write a book describing the new birth. The title says it all. Let me give you the title, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, The Explosive Power of a New Affection. And so I want to ask you, have you seen this same change take place in your life? Do you see the explosive, expulsive power of a new affection? and new appetites in your life? Do you, do you see a new love for God, a new love for Christ, a new love for the Bible, a new love for the church, a new love for fellowship, a new love for holiness? This always, always, always accompanies the new birth. Well, I must hurry I want you to at least know that I know that I must hurry. It's an unconditional birth. There's nothing you can do to deserve to be born again. There's only one kind of person that God impregnates their soul, and that is a sinner. None of us deserve to be born again. None of us are good enough to be born again again. None of us are worthy to be born again. God delights to regenerate the most unlikely people. He loves to reach down to the bottom of the barrel to find His saints, to find sinners and to convert them into saints. And standing behind the doctrine of regeneration is the doctrine of sovereign election. And it is those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world, these are the ones the Spirit of God finds and moves upon their heart and transforms them. A great cross-reference is Titus 3 verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, it's nothing of us, okay, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Saving mercy always works in partnership with saving grace, and grace operates in those who are so undeserving. If you're here today and you have not been born again, if you're here today and outside the kingdom of God, if you're here today and thinking, I'm so far away from God, I don't even know how I got into this worship service, but something has drawn me here but I'm so far away from God, God could never save someone like me. I want you to know you are the, the candidate that God is looking for, someone just like you, to, to display His grace and His glory upon you. Spurgeon said, if God can get the elephant onto the ark, He can get the ant onto the ark. And if He can get the chief of sinners onto the ark, He can get you onto the ark. Number seven, it's a life-giving birth. We've already really addressed this, but let me just touch upon it for a moment. Justification by faith alone changes your status and your standing before God. You are declared to be the righteousness of God. It is a forensic legal declaration by God, and you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ is transferred to your account and you have now changed your standing before God. But what precedes justification by faith alone in the order salutis, the order of salvation, is actually regeneration, which which gives you life, which awakens you out of your spiritual slumber, which resurrects you from the grave of sin, it, is, it gives life. It gives eternal life. It, 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 the life of God now surges into your soul, and you come alive unto God. Eighth, it's a radical birth. <laughs> no one is slightly altered in the new birth. If your life has not been dramatically changed, You have not been born again because the one who has been born again, it radically changes that person's life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. B.B. Warfield, the great Princetonian theologian from the 19th century writes this, the new birth is a radical and complete transformation wrought in the soul by the Holy Spirit, by virtue of which we become new men, no longer conformed to this world, but in knowledge and holiness of the truth created after the image of God. That's what the new birth does. None of us here today can even fully comprehend the dramatic change and transformation that has taken place in our lives in the new birth. Very quickly, two last ones. It's a purifying birth. It cleanses the once dirty soul and washes away the filth of the old life. It purges the soul. It scrubs it clean like a bath, Ezekiel 36, 25. God says, "'I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean.'" I will cleanse you from all your filthiness." And the next verse is when He says, "'I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh.'" He's talking about the new birth. This is what Jesus meant when He said in John 3 verse 5, "'Unless one is born of water and the Spirit.'" It's not referring to water baptism. It's referring metaphorically to the ministry of the Holy Spirit to wash away the defilement out of your soul as God puts a new heart into your once defiled innermost being. And Titus 3 verse 5 talks about the washing of regeneration. Well, here's the final word, permanent. It's a permanent birth. The new birth gives eternal life. How long does eternal life live last? Throughout eternity. If you could be born again and then lose your salvation, you didn't have eternal life. You had five-year life, ten-year life, but God has given us eternal life and that which is settled for eternity, eternity can never be undone in time. We could put it this way, no one who is born again will ever be unborn. Once born again, always born again. It is a sovereign work of God. It is an irrevocable work of God in the soul. So I bring this to conclusion. As I close, I must ask you some personal questions. Are you born of God? Have you been born again? Has God given you eternal life? Have you seen powerful new affections in your life? Do you see that you've become a new creation? Do you see that your old life is over and that the old things have passed away? Do you now see surging through your soul? the life of God and the soul within you. George Whitfield was the greatest evangelist I think who's ever lived since the Apostle Paul. As a young man, he went to Oxford University, he was an unbeliever. He was trying to save himself by his own efforts. He did not understand the grace of God and he did not understand the new birth. He was approached one day by two men to be a part of their Bible study. Their names were John Wesley and Charles Wesley. And so, Whitfield, Wesley, and Wesley, and just a small handful of other men met to study the Bible, to pray, to do good works, to even punish their body to try to commend themselves to God. Not a one of them was saved. And one day, the great hymn writer Charles Wesley, who himself was lost, handed Whitfield a book by Henry Skruegel entitled The Life of God in the Soul of a Man. It's a classic. And Whitfield read that, and God used that to open his eyes to see what his spiritual eyes had never seen before that it's not by his works that he would enter into the kingdom of God, it would be by the work of God within his own soul that he would enter into the kingdom of God. And George Whitfield was born again. It was that message that George Whitfield trumpeted throughout England, throughout Scotland, throughout Wales got on a ship thirteen times and crossed the Atlantic Ocean, came to the colonies and literally electrified the eastern seacoast, preaching in Philadelphia when it was double the population of Philadelphia, preaching in Boston and New York when it was double the population as people came from far and wide to hear the message. And the preeminent message he preached again and again is, you must be born again. A woman once came to him and said, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep telling us we must be born again? And he said, because, dear woman, you must be born again. (laughs) And so I say to you today on the authority of the Word of God, you must be born again. It's not walking an aisle, raising a hand, signing a card, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it is, you must be born again. God must perform a miracle in your soul and in your life, and it is the greatest event to ever take place within your soul as you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. If you have never been born again, I simply point you to Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of faith, who for the hope that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. He died for sinners upon the cross. You must know that you're a sinner and cannot save yourself and cannot raise yourself, that there's only one Savior. He died upon a cross bearing the sins of all those who will turn to Him and believe in Him. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you have never turned to Jesus Christ, praise the Lord you're here today. Turn to the Lord. Call upon him while he is near. Say, God, have mercy upon my soul. I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, Him who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the miracle of the new birth and this dramatic re alteration and recreation that you have worked within us. We are overwhelmed by your mercy, and by your grace, that you would snatch brands out of the fire like we are and make us to become trophies of grace. We rise up and bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.